The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com. I had to travel a ton this summer, which is a blessing and a cursing all at the same time. It was cool to see a bunch of really amazing parts of the world, but it really uh, it stinks being away from you all. That's trying to, to um, suck up to you all, but I mean it. I love being with you guys. I count uh, my time with you all as a blessing and a gift that I don't deserve. So it's good to be back with you. Hey, listen, just a, cu- a few quick things by way of announcement really quick. Members, this is very important. The 28th, which I'm fairly certain is next Sunday, is our members meeting. It is going to be a crucial members meeting for you to be at. So if you have anything on the 28th on Sunday from 12 to 2, I think is the right time, uh, cancel whatever that thing is. This is more important. Be there. You're not going to want to miss some of the announcements that will happen on the members meeting. Second, there is a lot of you guys that I don't know. So if you're a visitor, welcome. It's good to kind of meet you. My name's Ronnie. You can tell me your name at some point, so I've kind of met you. It's good to meet you. I'm one of the pastors here alongside Kevin, who you heard lead, and Josh. Uh, he's another pastor here. We just want to say welcome and that we love you. Uh, we, Josh does it all the time, and, and it's, it's worth repeating what we hope here for, for, for visitors is that when you leave here, you wouldn't be impressed with us. You wouldn't be impressed with our amazing facilities or our you know, unbelievable laser lights and smoke machines. You wouldn't be impressed with any of that, but you'd be enamored with the person of Jesus Christ. That's what we want. We want you to leave here loving and adoring and treasuring and cherishing Jesus more than you did when you walked through the doors. So know that we don't have any gimmicks for you. We don't have any cool tricks as a church. What we have is Jesus Christ, and we think he's enough. So we're going to jump in, we're going to pray real quick, and then we will get started on our second week of the Declare and Display series. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in serious humility, knowing that what we're about to partake in and what we've partaken in this morning through singing your word, through confessing and seeing your grace through, through preaching your word, through rejoicing in what your son has done on our behalf. Lord, we just take a moment and realize that we don't come in here as entitled individuals who have a right to anything we've done this morning and what we will do this morning. Rather, we come in here knowing that we're broken, that we're bruised, that none of us in this room are pretty or have it together, Yet, while we were unlovable, you loved us. While we were weak, you came after us. In our death, you brought us to life. And so we take just a second. We calm our minds, clear our hearts, calm our nerves, and we just say, you are God. To you be the glory. To you be the honor. To you be the fame. We're desperate for you this morning. We need you this morning. I pray that you would use a worm like me to faithfully bring your word. I pray that you would use broken people who are sitting in probably broken metal chairs to receive your your glorious word. And God, would you look at us today in delight. And may we press into you, press into your gospel, and adore you deeper because of what happens this morning. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Well, we are in the second week of a series that I absolutely love. So I hate to correct him from the pulpit, but Hedger said last week that it was our second year in this. It's 
actually our third year. We, we met once. It was called We Exist. This is our second year of Declare and Display. It's our third year doing this series. And we do it every year on purpose. It's not just like, oh, there's four weeks to kill. What should we do? Oh, let's just do that series again. That's not what we're doing. This is very intentional. What's happening is this. is we recognize, I recognize, Josh and Kevin recognize their propensity to wander, right? We wander. I know, I know that I have a supreme ultimate end. I know that. I know that I'm marching towards something in my life. Yet, I often forget it. I'm prone to wander away from it. I know I have a supreme end, but it's hard for me to stay focused on it. And just as I am prone to wander as an individual for my supreme end, we are prone to wander as a corporate body. We, we together make up Emmaus Church, and we are a corporate body. We're not individuals. We're a corporate family. And we, as a family, we're prone to wander. We, just like you individually and me individually, we have an ultimate end. There is an end or a goal that we are marching towards, and yet we're, we're, we're prone to forget it. So what this series does for us is it helps us to just refocus. All right, look, I know you've been wandering. I know you got distracted by that, and there's a squirrel over there, but here, let's come back. We're going to come back. We're going to zoom in, laser-like focus on why we're even here this morning, why we even come together, why there's a tons of volunteers, why all the pastors, I guess not anymore, most of the pastors are unpaid, well, why we do this. Praise God for that, by the way. Why do we come here and spend all this time? What are we doing here? There's a purpose for it. That's what the Declare and Display series is meant to remind us. So what we're doing is we're marching straight through our vision. The vision of Emmaus Church is this, if you haven't heard it. Emmaus Church exists to see God glorified, churches multiplied, by declaring and displaying the gospel. Let me repeat it just in case you missed it. Emmaus Church exists to see God glorified, churches multiplied, by declaring and displaying the gospel. So we just take four weeks, and we go through each part of that. We started off with just the first one, Emmaus Church exists. So Hedger last week told us, how did we come into existence? What's the story? And we got to see God's faithfulness and his providence and stringing together a bunch of broken people to do something that they should never have the ability to do, which is be here with you all. The second week, today, we're going to focus on why we have the very first thing, Emmaus Church exists to see God glorified. We're talking about his glory today. Then next week, Hedger will talk about the importance and why we have it built into our statement that we want to see churches multiplied. What does that mean? How is Emmaus going to do that? How are we going to see churches planted? How are we going to see disciples made? How are we going to see dead men come to life and converted? How are we going to see that? And in the fourth week, I'll talk to us again about how our method of that is by declaring and displaying the gospel and why we differentiate between the two. Emmaus Church 6 exists to see God glorified, churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. I would argue that of all four of the weeks, this is the most important. Not because I'm preaching, not, not anything like that, but because of our subject matter. The content of today's sermon is the glory of God. Not only would I argue that, but we would argue that as elders and as a church, that the supreme end of all things is the glory of God. It's more important than the, the first couple words that Emmaus Church exists. God's glory is infinitely more important than the existence of Emmaus Church. Infinitely more important. Because if Emmaus Church dies tomorrow and none of us come back, God's glory is going to remain. If we fail to preach the gospel, if we fail to display the gospel, God's glory will still remain. If we praise 
pray to the Lord this doesn't happen. If we fail to reach our vision of seeing scores of churches planted around Kansas City and, and further, God's glory will still remain. It is the supreme end, and it's what we're going to be focusing on today. So, one of my heroes, John Piper, said this about God's glory. If you know his ministry, you know he's obsessed, literally obsessed with God's glory. He said this about it. He said, it's excruciatingly hard to explain. Just with words, it's so hard to explain. And he compared it to this. He said, it's a bit like explaining a basketball compared to beauty. Right? So if you have two people who have never heard of either of those things in front of you, and you're, you're commissioned to explain both of them to them, and you're, you're starting with a basketball, well, that's a fairly easy task, right? You could say, well, it's round. It's about yay big. Uh, it's uh, leather. Who knows? It's leather. It's orange. It's, it's got some kind of rubber on the inside that you inflate. You can bounce it, pass it, you shoot it through a hoop. That's what a basketball is. And they would say, okay, I guess I know what that is. It sounds pretty easy enough to explain. But beauty, beauty is a bit different. Beauty is a little bit harder just to say, oh, it's this tangible thing. It's a lot harder just with your words to describe beauty. Piper goes on to say, it's actually a bit easier to explain beauty, not, by, not with words or anything like that, but just through a lifelong experience of, oh, that's what it is. Of just us coming alongside each other and saying, oh, wow, that's beautiful. That, that's beautiful. And so instead of just trying to explain it with words, beauty is much more easily experienced. It's much more easily pointed out than just explained. Does that make sense? And so it is with the glory of God. The glory of God is difficult to just give a definition. Here's, here's a 15-word you know, definition of the glory of God. But it's much easier, just like beauty, to come together through a lifelong experience with one another and say, that's the glory of God. That's what I've been trying to say. That's it. That, that over there, that's it. That's the glory of God. When we, we experience the glory of God, it's much easier to say, that's what I was trying to say, that's what I was trying to talk about, than just give a definition. Regardless, if you know Piper, you know he's going to try. So this was the definition that he gave, and I'm going to try to improve upon it. I know that's pretty pretentious to say, but I think I have a better one. This is what Piper said. He said, God's glory is the manifest manifestation, the, sorry, God's glory is the manifest beauty of God's holiness. It is the manifest beauty of God's holiness. Now, Again, I know it's scary to improve on John Piper, but he's not the Bible, so I'm going to go for it anyway. Here's the definition that I'm going to be working with in this sermon. The glory of God is the manifestation of God's grandeur and beauty in all that he is and does. The manifestation of God's grandeur and beauty in all that he is and does. For you theological and just uh, word nerds, there's some ontological nuance that I think mine captures that his doesn't. So, the manifestation of God's grandeur and beauty in all that he is and does. That's, that's, what, he, that's what his glory is. So, so think about this. God is more than you can fathom. And he does more than you can fathom. And all of his actions and all of his being are more beautiful than you can fathom. So if his glory is the manifestation of the beauty of all he is and does, what does that mean? You cannot fathom the glory of God. You cannot do it. We will not be able, you and I, regardless of how well this sermon's preached or how well any 
textbook tries to explain it, we will not grasp the glory of God in its entirety. We cannot do it. But we can give an attempt and find ourselves flat-faced amazed by it. So here's how we're going to do this. This is a very weird sermon for me. I, uh, I realize that I'm just a, a broken 20-something-year-old who has very little helpful things to say. And so when I preach, I like to stick with this thing as much as possible because in myself, I have no authority. But man, does this book have a whole lot of authority? So when I normally preach, I just walk, as we're in a passage, and I'm walking through it text by text, verse by verse. I don't want to miss a word because my authority's here, not here. You don't need to hear from Ronnie. You need to hear from the Lord. But today, here's what we're going to do. Because we're talking about a theme, the glory of God. Instead of just walking through one passage, I'm going to do what's called uh, basically a biblical theology. What I want to do with you, just so you know where we're going, is I want to zoom way out, like 30,000, 50,000 feet up in the air, and just look over the Bible and say, what is and how is it manifesting the glory of God? And together, we're going to do this, what I said earlier. We're going to together, 30,000 feet in the air, say, that's it. That's the glory of God. Oh, that too. That's the glory of God. Yeah, that's the glory of God too. That's what we're going to do today. A biblical theology of the glory of God focusing on creation, sin, salvation, and culmination. That's a lot to achieve. My clicker says I have 32 minutes left. Hang on. Are you ready? You better be way more enthused than that. I don't think you understand how much work we have. Let me explain. This is going to be a lot of work. Oh, also, this is probably good to say too. You're welcome to try to keep up within your Bible, but I'm going to be all over the place. So I'm going to primarily be in Isaiah 43 and Ezekiel 36. So you're welcome to turn there. We're going to get some Old Testament today. But we're going to start at the beginning. Genesis 1. Let's take a look at the glory of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of water. And God said, let there be. And there was. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let there be animals, and there were animals. He said, let there be people, and there were people. Now, there's lots of questions that we could ask about the doctrine of creation, right? So many questions. Right, we, we can get into evolutionary theory. We can get into how God creates. We can get to the order of creation. We can get into all these things. But a question that isn't asked very frequently is why create in the first place? Why? Why something rather than nothing? Why? Well, a few people have asked this question and they've given different answers. One of the answers that was given was loneliness. God created out of loneliness, right? He was lonely. Well, to this I say hogwash. That's a preposterous idea. Let me tell you why. God, lonely? Like the Almighty One who exists three in one, our Trinity will help us with this, who has existed forever, who has every good quality to its perfect degree, and has existed in harmony amongst Himself for eternity. Again, we're not fathoming that existed in perfect harmony amongst himself for eternity, creates out of a compulsion as small as loneliness? Absurd. God's not lonely. Within the Trinity, he has perfect community. Does not create, emphatically does not create out of loneliness. 
Well, a little bit more of a noble answer is love, right? God wanted there to be love in the world. So he created a being to love and to love him. To that, I say, no, it's still not big enough. Love is a bit more noble than loneliness, but it's not big enough to be the end for which the world was created. So answers like these show us how little we know about the Trinity. Since all three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, have existed forever in perfect harmony and love with one another. Moreover, when we see when God does create people, is that love is actually one of the first things to be broken, is it not? Like, humans come into the picture in the first couple chapters, and we're already killing each other by chapter 4. Literally. So, so if, if, if God's whole goal in making humans was to create a, a good type of love, something went... Seriously wrong. These are not satisfactory answers of why something rather than nothing. So, you probably guess by the, by the topic of this sermon that I'm going to argue that the reason God created something rather than nothing is for his own glory. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. That's why your favorite sports team is here. That's why your favorite food is here. It is all here as opposed to not being here for his glory. Just a sidebar, I'm just going to recommend a, a, a quick work really quickly. You probably guess what it is if, if you're familiar with theology. Jonathan Edwards, a famous American theologian, probably one of the best our country has ever produced in the world, was alive in the 1700s, Puritan, North England, uh, became the first president of Princeton. Uh, Edwards wrote an essay, and it's called A Dissertation Concerning the End for Which the World Was Made. And it doesn't get any easier than that. The essay is extremely difficult to read, but if you can wade through it, you will be better because of it. In it, Edwards argues that the, the glory of God is the only end that sustains the weight of creation. And he lists, just like I did, he lists a tons of reasons why God could have created the world and shows why glory is the only one that holds up to the test. So, a dissertation concerning the end for which the world was made by Jonathan Edwards. Highly recommend it. If you read it, come tell me. I'd love to talk to you about it. Okay, sidebar closed. While it's great to have Edwards on our side, it's a lot more important to have the Bible on our side, right? So Edwards agrees with me that God created the world for his glory, but does the Bible. Isaiah 43. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, that's verse 1, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name, you are mine. When you pass through waters, I will be with you. Man, do you hear how good the Old Testament is? Do not neglect the Old Testament. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom. Cush and Seba I exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes, and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth. earth. Verse 7, focus in. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, when I formed and made. Catch it? Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, 
whom I formed and made. He's telling, in this scene, I don't want to jump into it because we're going to get into it. He's telling the northern and southern kingdoms, listen, I'm not going to destroy you, totally. You're going to face some suffering, but I'm coming after you because I love you. And listen, it's not for your sake, we're going to see, he says in Ezekiel 33, it's not for your sake that I'm doing this. It's for my name's sake because my glory is on the line and I created you for my glory. That's what he's going to say. So creation, all things, you and me, the chair you're sitting in, everything exists for the glory of God. So, so let me just, another aside, we're going to have a couple of these. Let me just put a little pop a balloon in, in the kind of the cultural, um, mushy Christianity that we have in America that is, uh, could, could die a little bit quicker and I'd be okay with it. It's that like, you know, this, this mentality of like, ah. Oh, you poor soul, you have so many things working against you and you're so great. You just need to read this book. It's like a love letter to you from God. No, it is not. If this is a love letter, it's pretty messed up. There's a whole lot of crazy stuff that happens in here. What this is, is a record, an account, a God who counted it worthy enough for us to know who he is and he revealed himself. And the whole thing, I'm telling you, from the table of contents to the maps is about his glory, not about your love relationship. It's about his glory, the whole thing. So creation, it's rooted in. You and I are here as opposed to not being here for his glory. Let's go. That's God's glory in creation. Now God's glory in sin. The story continues. We know that those humans who he created for his glory and put in the garden, they don't pursue his glory very long, do they? No, they don't. Rather, in rebellion against the glory of God, they disobey the one thing they were told not to do. And hear me, this must be the way that we think of sin. Sin isn't just the breaking of rules. It's a cosmic infraction against the glory of God. It's a cosmic infraction against the glory of God. What's happening when we sin is that we're ascribing worth and value and praise, honestly, to something that is not God. That's what's happening. So let's just say, uh, uh, let's do... Uh, sexuality. When, when you fall in, in sexual sin, we'll just say pornography, what's happening in that moment is you're saying, this thing is worthy of my affection, is worthy of my attention, and I'm going to praise it. I'm even going to praise it, even though I've been told not to, by the one who breathes out stars. My affection is going here, not here. That is an infraction of the glory of God. Do you see it? You're ascribing worth and value to this thing. And it could be anything. Let's say you're a kleptomaniac and you can't stop stealing. Well, the thing you're ascribing worth to is having stuff. You want to steal it. As opposed to the glory of God. Herman Bovink, one of my favorite theologians of all time, said, I even tweeted this week, you might have seen it. He said, when we stop worshiping the true God, when humans stop worshiping the true God, we immediately start fashioning for ourselves a false God. We're never not worshiping something. It's either God who we're ascribing worth and glory to or whatever sinful passion our flesh desires. Sin is not just breaking rules. It's cosmic treason against the glory of God. And if we thought about it like this, we would be a bit more timid in our approach to consume it. Would we not? So, sin truly is a cosmic treason against God and His glory. Paul echoes this condemnation when he says in Romans 3, right? This is our next spot. Romans 3, that all have sinned. All have sinned. And then what does he say after that? 
He doesn't say, all have sinned and we're kind of disappointed in them. All have sinned and God's feelings are a bit hurt. All have sinned and now their life's going to be a bit harder than it would have been if they would just listen to me. And that's not what he says. What does he say? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what we're falling short of. So we see the glory of God in sin and that the thing that we're failing is obtaining the glory of God. We're, we're, we're ascribing worth to something else, giving it glory, and in so doing, we're falling to see His glory. This is the glory of God in sin. <clears throat> so, we've already seen this, seen this theme of glory woven into two major portions. Right? 30,000 feet up, we see the glory of God in creation, now the glory of God in sin. Let's go to the glory of God in salvation. This is a fun one. A little bit easier to hear as well. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that after the fall, God starts and endeavors on an epic, and I mean that word in a literal sense, an epic story to rescue his people. He starts on the story, and we know it culminates in eventually the, the murder of the Son of God, the destruction of Jesus Christ. That's where the apex of the Bible finds itself in the, the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we know that God's epic plan to save his people, to rescue his people, culminates and the, and the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't start there, right? This is the, this is the problem with many American evangelicals is we, we, we read Genesis 3 to get the fall, and then we're jumping straight to Matthew. There's a whole lot of material in between there. whole lot. Called the Old Testament. Inspired, profitable, good. So, so, he, so he starts this epic journey of redeeming and rescuing his people by what? Well, he chooses a people for himself, right? He calls them out. So you have, you know, by, by Genesis 6, the world is so ruined, God's like, all right, we're starting this whole bad boy over. He floods the place. But he calls for himself a people within this whole ruinous world of sinners who are ascribing worth and glory to everything but God. Even the thoughts of their thoughts of their thoughts are wicked. He calls for himself a people. And we learn what? The, that people that he calls for himself is eventually called Israel, Right? We see it through, goes through Noah, comes to Abraham, we eventually get Israel. So then he establishes for himself a people called Israel. This is important because these people, the Israelites, the Jews, is who the Messiah is going to come from. We can't have the murder of the Son of God if we don't have the nation of Israel. So then, listen to what the Bible says about the choosing of the nation of Israel. Isaiah 43, again, you, my servant you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Jeremiah 13. I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord. Why? That they may be for me a people, that they will be a praise, and that they will be my glory. Jeremiah 13. They will be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. So the whole house of Israel, the fact that he even started a people, a nation, for his glory. Let's go back even further. The fact that he even created people for his glory. They sinned. It's an infraction of his glory. He's going to redeem them ultimately by Jesus Christ for his glory. But he's going to do that through electing a nation, the nation of Israel, for his glory. So he chooses this people. And then what we have then in the Old Testament, right? Basically from like the beginning of this book to like here, what we have is the story of this nation that he has chosen for himself for his glory. So he establishes them. 
We see the patriarchs, and then what we see, Exodus comes, right? Moses pops up on the scene. He's kind of a fun character. But what's happening in Moses' life is what? The, the Israelites, those chosen people, are enslaved. They're enslaved in Egypt, right? For years, hundreds of years, they're enslaved. But God doesn't leave his people to rot in slavery, but he redeems them, does he not? Why? Why does he redeem them? For his glory. Let's see. Psalms 106. Like I said, you don't have to flip there. I'm going to read them pretty quickly. Psalms 106. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works, but they rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet you saved them for your name's sake, that you might make known your mighty power. For your namesake, that you might make known your mighty power. That's why he saves them. He doesn't save them so he can get something out of them because he feels lonely or he needs to be loved. He saves them for his mighty power and his glory. It keeps going. The New Testament speaks about this scene as well. It gives insight to God's dealing with the Egyptians. So, so you know the scene. The, the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt. God wants to release his people, so he raises up Moses, and he says, Moses, you're going to go to the king of the Egyptians, and you're going to tell them, let my people go. Let the Israelites go. Moses says, but I can't talk. Come on. God is showing up in a burning bush, telling you to do something. Just do it. For Pete's dragon, just go. So this tongue-tied Moses gets his brother Aaron to come with him, right? And they go to Pharaoh, and they say, listen, God has commanded me to tell you to let the Israelites go. Let them go. Don't keep them here anymore. What does Pharaoh say? Nah, not doing that. All right, we'll have some frogs from the sky. Pfft. Right? Oh, here's, your cows are dead. Okay, Pharaoh, listen. Let the people go. Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to. Okay, well, here's some blood in your water. Let my people go. No, I'm not going to. Listen to what the New Testament says about why Pharaoh is so stubborn. Romans 9, 17. For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power. And this is what God is saying to Pharaoh in Romans 9, 17. I have, this is the purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed. Exodus 14, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. You see that? He's hardening Pharaoh's heart. It's hard for us to stomach, is it not? It feels almost unfair. What is fairness in the economy of the glory of God? I was the one who hardened your heart so I could get glory over you and all of your host. The glory that you were being given by the Egyptian is mine, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Okay, so we see after he rescues them out of Egypt, they go where? They go into um, the wilderness, right? So they're leaving Exodus, they, the Red Sea gets parted, that whole thing, and then, then they find themselves in the wilderness, which is a really relatable scene of the Bible for us. They're like the most just flaky individuals and just their spirituality cannot be consistent, which I don't know if it sounds um, relatable to you, but it sure does to me. 
for about a, a week or maybe even a day, I think to myself, man, God is so good to me. He's so great to me. I feel, I feel his love. I feel close to him. And it's like 30 seconds later, I'm like, God, where are you? You've, show, you hit, you've hidden your face from me for ages. Like, that's, what, that's my life. God's good. I don't even know if he exists. God's good. Where is he at? Is he hiding from me? God's good. Where did he go? And this is what they have in the wilderness, right? They're, they're thinking to themselves, praise God who freed us from slavery. The Egyptians are gone. And then literally you, you flip the page and they're saying things like, maybe we were better in captivity. It's crazy. So listen to how God rescues them out of wilderness, Ezekiel 20. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules. But I acted for my name's sake, that it should not be profaned among the nations. So he rescues them from Egypt for his glory. He delivers them through the Red Sea for his glory. He secures and, and stays with them in the wilderness for his glory. If you haven't noticed, we're just at the beginning of Exodus. We don't have time to march through the entire Old Testament, sadly. We should do a study of the glory of God through the entire Old Testament. But let me just give you some highlights, right? We're going to stay 30,000, 50,000 feet above the Old Testament and just see, that's it. That's the glory of God. That's it. The Old Testament moves from the Pentateuch, the first five books, into the historical books. And in 1 Samuel 12, 20, we see that it says that God will not forsake his name or his glory. He's telling the Israelites, I will not forsake you because of my name. We move on past the historical books and get into the prophets. Right? And in the prophets, 2 Kings 19, God says when, when, when Israel is being uh, threatened by, the, by the, the nation of Assyria and the nation of Babylon, God says, I will save you for my namesake, for my glory. And when we see we see that they come, right? So, so if you know your, 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 your Bible history, we see in about 900-ish, the, the kingdom splits, right? Under, under Solomon and his son's rule, the, 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 the nation of Israel splits into Israel and Judah. So now we have two kingdoms, right? So we have creation. God chose for himself a people, called them Israel. They were going through Egypt. They went through the wilderness. They finally get into the promised land. They want a king. God says, don't take a king. It's going to be bad for you. They want a king anyway, so they get a king. A couple of kings later, their country's divided. Okay? Israel and Judah. And then we start to see, Israel tries to behave a bit. Really poor excuse for behavior. Judah, not even close to trying. So we see threats coming in. We see threats coming in, and what happens is the Assyrians come in in 5, uh, 526 B.C., and they capture they capture a major portion of the country. And then we, we think uh, maybe Judah will get out, but they don't. The Babylonians, I'm sorry, the Assyrians come in in 722. The Babylonians come in in 526. So the, the people of God, who he's chosen for his glory, are now non-existent. They're gone. They're slaves in the land of Assyria and Babylon and eventually Persia. So they're totally gone. So you have the story. Creation, chosen a people, saves them from Egypt, saves them from the wilderness, gets them into the promised land. They get a king. They divide the country. Both parts of the country get taken over. And now, at this moment in the Old Testament, everyone's a slave. No one's in their home. No, everyone's gone. Where is the glory of God? He says in Ezekiel 36, let me just read this. <clears throat> he says in Ezekiel 36, 22, they're in captivity. They're not in their homeland. 
And he finally speaks word that he's going to rescue them. And listen to what he says. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord your God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. So he does. We have the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra and the book of Esther to show for it. And this is basically how the Old Testament closes. The reestablishment of the nation of Israel for the glory of God. So, recap. God creates for his glory, sends an infraction against his glory. He chooses a people for his glory. He saves them out of Egypt for his glory. He saves them from the wilderness for his glory. The, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians come and capture them. He rescues them from them from his, for his glory. And then we get to the New Testament. Now we're in the New Testament. Here's what I want to show you in the New Testament. We understand as evangelical Christians that a major apex in the New Testament is the salvation of God's people, the establishment of the church. Right? That's what a massive portion of the New Testament is about, how God redeemed and established and commissioned his church. And so I want to take you to a passage that deals greatly. Feel free to turn there, Ephesians 1. I'm going to take you there, a passage that deals greatly with your salvation, which is what a lot of us would say is what the entire New Testament is about, and show you something wondrous about it. <clears throat> Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Just, when, we, when I read this passage, it's amazing. Just keep in mind the things that you get in Jesus Christ. Just, just keep them on the top of your head. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us. So you've already been blessed. Now you're chosen before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless, a wretch like me, holy and blameless, before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Now we're adopted. To him, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Keeps going. In him, we have redemption through the blood. And forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to himself, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory." In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, the guarantee of our inheritance until we require possession of it. So just quickly, listen to the things you get. Blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. You're chosen him. You're made holy and blameless. You're adopted. You're blessed in the beloved. You have redemption through his blood. You have forgiveness of your trespasses. You're lavished upon with the riches of his grace. You have obtained an inheritance and you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Whew. And how does it end? 
to the praise of his glory. That's the next clause after everything we just read. To the praise of his glory. So why were you adopted into the family of God? To the praise of his glory. Why do you have redemption through his blood? To the praise of his glory. Why will you, a worm, I mean that, you, I don't know if anyone's told you this, you are sinful and wretched and broken and bruised. You are not whole. You are not complete. And in Christ, you're made all of those things. You're washed. You're renewed. You're made clean. You were dirty. You you get to take off your grave clothes and put on the clothes, the robes of Christ's righteousness to the praise of his glory. Did you see that refrain? He says it three times in this passage. To the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory, and the very end, to the praise of his glory. So even your salvation, just as much as God created people for his glory, he recreates you in your salvation for his glory. It is the end even of his salvation. Yes, God came here to save you, but to an even bigger degree, God came to glorify himself. And that is good news for us. Let's keep going. One more section. We've seen the glory of God in creation, the glory of God in sin, the glory of God in salvation, and now I want to show you one more thing, the glory of God in the culmination of all things. So this present life isn't the last time we're going to get to experience and partake in the glory of God. We see it in the afterlife as well. This is the second to last chapter of the Bible. Listen to how unbelievably beautiful this is. Revelation 21, 23. And I saw no temple in that city. Talk about the new heavens and new Jerusalem. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city, listen to this. Oh my word, this is good. And the city has no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. So for eternity, after he is for the existence of our cosmos, gone after his glory, once he culminates all things, there's not even a sun or a moon anymore because his glory is finally seen and it lights all things. It's the lamp of the Lamb. Literally, I hope you see, the reason I'm taking you through this 30,000 foot view is to show you that the entire, the the glory of God is the entire enterprise of the cosmos. That's, That's what it is. The glory of God is the enterprise of the entire cosmos. Everything. From rocks to to water to you to sports to drinks to food to everything. It exists for his glory. Your salvation, your adoption, your inheritance, all of it for his glory. The bruising of his son for his glory. The sending of the Holy Spirit for his glory. All of it. God's glory is the enterprise of the entire cosmos. It defines all that we say and all that we do. It should guide our steps, our thoughts, and indeed, we even are commanded in this way. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Even your drinking and eating should be for his glory. So then, God created for his glory. He rescued Israel for his glory. He gives us Jesus for his glory. He saved you for his glory. And Emmaus is after his glory. We will preach unapologetically preach the word not to make a name for ourselves or to create a platform or to grow to a certain number we will preach for his glory we will pray not to gain something that we think we deserve or we're entitled to but we will pray for his glory we will get over ourselves and we will talk to our neighbors for his glory we will get on a plane 
and go to the other side of the world for his glory. The glory of God impacts missions more than you can imagine. Just think about this. The glory of God should make lostness insufferable. The thought of billions of image bearers right now ascribing worth and praise to false and dead idols instead of glorifying the living and true God should be unbearable. There are billions of people right now ascribing worth and praise to false and dead idols. Billions. That thought should be insufferable to us when we get the goodness of the glory of God. We will drink our drinks and eat our food to his glory. We will love one another for his glory. We will meet in groups and homes throughout the week for his glory. We will wake up, go to our jobs, love our spouses, raise our kids, and live our lives for his glory. We will do it all for his glory. So let me get a few more words. If you know me at all, if you've listened to me preach at all, you know that I would agree with Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, one of my heroes, when he said he would rather die and worms consume him in his pulpit before he ever preached a sermon without the gospel in it. He'd rather die and have worms consume his body. I agree with that. I don't, I don't have anything else to offer but Jesus Christ. The person and work of Jesus Christ is all I have for you. I don't have any other thing for you. So how do I get the gospel into this sermon? We're talking about the glory of God. How do I get it into this sermon? I was thinking about that. How do I just, I don't want to kind of just mention it. Yeah, God gets, God gets glory from, from salvation, but I just want to mention it. How, do, how does it actually impact the gospel? And when it hit me, it felt like a freight train of just wonder and awe. Because feel the paradoxical nature. Do you know what that means, paradox? It, it seems like a contradiction, but it's not. Feel the paradoxical nature of the Christian faith. God, right, this whole thing, everything I've said, it should make sense to you. Right, that God gets glory isn't a surprise. He's the one who breathed out stars. He is the one who right now is telling the ocean where to stop. He is the one right now, by the word of his power, he is upholding the fiber in your being so that you can stay put intact and listen to this sermon. Literally, not figuratively, literally, he is holding you together by the word of his power right now. Of course he's the one who gets the glory. Of course. He's the only one who didn't sin. We're wicked and broken sinners. Of course he gets the glory. This makes sense to me. But here's what doesn't make sense. Listen to this. God could have gotten glory any way he wanted to. Any way. He could make waves in such a way that they would come up and in the sky spell out the glory of God in every different language. He could have done that. He could make the clouds spell out his glory if he wanted to. But the primary way that God gets glory in the New Testament is through the salvation of his people, the church. That's the primary way. Your salvation is the primary way that he's going to get glory. And listen, even more than that, he could have saved you any way he wanted to. He could have said, you, you and you, all of you all, work extremely hard for your salvation so you can feel how hard it is to be holy like me. And in doing so, you would recognize, I can't be holy. He could have done that. And if you don't make it, that's on you. Work for your salvation so you can feel how holy I am. But instead, he chose the destruction of his son. And listen to how that even happens. This glorious God who we just, 50,000 foot view of the entire Bible, the whole thing's about him, it's not about you. He's the one who breathes out stars, all that good stuff, yada, yada, yada. He comes not like we would expect him to come. Right? The Jews expected a king who were going to crush the Romans who were oppressing them. It's like God crushed 
the Egyptians in slavery. That's what they wanted. And that's what we expect as American 21st century proud, the bigger the better type mentality. That's what we expect. But that's not what happens. This is the paradoxical nature of the Christian faith. Instead of coming with the, with the crown of a king on his head, Jesus comes with the soft spot of a baby on his head. It doesn't make sense. And it's more beautiful than we realize. Instead of coming and crushing the government, he submits himself to Pontius Pilate and dies. Instead of coming on a throne, he comes in a manger. It's unbelievably beautiful that the God of glory would come after us in the first place. And the fact that he would come after us in the manner in which he did is honestly miraculous. So we see the glorious and wonderful king leaves his rights and comes as a baby. The glorious and wonderful king leaves his rights and dies a horrific death. Even on the cross, just, just feel this. This is what the glory of God could do. Even at the moment on the cross, he is holding together the cross by the power of his word. Literally, when he is nailed on the cross, he is holding that cross together by his word. When people are nailing the nails into his hands, he is allowing them to do that by holding their muscles together. That's crazy. It's crazy to me. And the glorious and wonderful king will eventually be resurrected. So do you feel this? Do you feel the weight of the glory of God and, and the weight of what Jesus deserved compared to what he actually got in contrast, in stark contrast to what you deserve compared to what you got? What Jesus deserves compared to what he got in contrast to what you deserve compared to what you got. It's miraculous. If we understand this, it will change so many things. I don't have time to, to list all the things that I want to list, but let me just quickly go through just a couple of things. As the glory of God, I want to change the posture of our church. The first is our boasting. The glory of God quickly shows you, Christian, that you have nothing to boast in except for him. He's the glorious one. He's the one that's holding you together. He's the one that initiated salvation. He's the one who is, is destroying, destroying his own son for your behalf. He is the one who victoriously rose three days later. He is your boast. There will never be a day in which you as a Christian can say, look at me. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Never. It will only be with empty hands I cling to the cross of Christ. He is my only boast. It should change our suffering. The glory of God should change our suffering. This is a way that the world will see that God really is glorious. When the Christian, I don't want to make light of suffering. I said it's just a small point at the end of my sermon. It's not a whole sermon about suffering. But listen, when the Christian faces deep trial, deep turmoil, and has serious suffering in his life that hurts and is real. When, when depression comes, when, when friends die, when family dies, when whatever happens, when cancer comes, whatever it may be, in those moments when we are at our lowest, in a valley, if we can say, God is good, and he is glorious, and he is enough, the world will see him as glorious. They will not see him as glorious if we are boasting in ourselves. Look at me, I got through this. The world will see him as glorious when we say, in my suffering, he is enough. And the last thing that should change our posture is our satisfaction. Our satisfaction. Yeah, we might not have all the things we want, 
We might not become the, the, quite the person we wanted to become in our lives. We might, we might feel like we're lacking a lot, but you know what we do have? We have the, this glorious God. We know him, and he is ours. You, currently, if you're a believer, if you believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, right now you are lacking nothing. Nothing. No car, no house, no job, no kids, no security, no, no applause of man, no fame, no position, nothing. You are lacking nothing. The God of glory is yours, and you are his. This is how the gospel impacts, and the glory of God impacts the gospel. We should be desperate because of his glory. His glory should animate us. It should animate us. We want others to experience it. We ourselves want to feel the weight of it, and we want the world to eventually shine with it. It should animate us in all that we do. This is the end of Emmaus. This is our goal. This is what we're marching towards. If we ever start marching towards anything other than the glory of God, we have wandered. It's the, it's the reason we want to plant churches. It's the reason we want to preach faithfully. It's the reason we want to disciple you. It's the reason we do all that we do. And you, if you decide to join in with us as a member, it is the reason you should do all that you do. The glory of God is our all. Let's pray. Now, this is, this is the crazy thing about this moment. Is we just talked about how glorious you are and how big you are and how frail we are and how, how, how bruised and broken we are, but yet, through the blood of Jesus, we can come to you right now at the end of the sermon, at the end of this uh, church service, and pray to you. So we realize that right now we're partaking in a blood-bought rite. We do not have... The, the right to talk to the glorious one that we've been discussing over the past hour. And so God, hear our prayer. Our, our prayer is this. Would you use us with all of our imperfections, with all of our insecurities, with all of our doubts, with all of our shortcomings, would you use us for your glory? Would you use us for your glory? Would you allow us the grace to die to ourselves and say like your son said, not my will, but yours, and live for your glory? May it be our all. May it animate us. May it be worth more than our lives. May your glory be worth more than our families and our money and our time and our ability. May your glory be worth everything to us. Let it animate us. God, I pray for this church as long as she shall live, as long as people are worshiping in this place with our church, would our end be your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.